0: You're listening to Season 5 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, we analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 5.2, The Gyms of Navarone, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and rewatching a beloved show like this is a bit like meeting up with an old friend after a long time apart. And lest that sound too sappy, keep in mind that this is a friend with their own line of merchandise available in specialty shops around the world.
1: And I'm Nina, new to War in the Pocket and hard-pressed not to binge the whole thing in one sitting. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 595 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Jaskel, Jorge, Bruce I, Eric S, Ren, Benjamin S, Calactus, The Devil You Know, Selena of the Moon, and... Jackie Asimov, you can say the full name. And additional thanks to Connor for supporting us on Ko-fi. This podcast would not be possible without your support.
0: Before we get started, I have a quick update on a question that puzzled us in the last podcast. You may remember that when we were discussing the SD Olympics 100 meter dash, we talked about the massive cannon used in place of a starting pistol. It looks a bit like a big old fashioned TV camera, but the design is so specific that we figured it had to be referencing something, even if we didn't recognize what. A listener, Evie, who has been doing her own research about early iterations of SD Gundam, identified it as the burst Liner, a kind of mobile artillery platform designed to be used by mobile suits. The Burstliner was designed for MSX, a proposed Gundam project from the era between first Gundam and Zeta that never got off the ground. Although MSX never went beyond the design phase, many suits from the series have enjoyed enduring popularity, like the Heavy Gundam, or the Act Zaku. The SD Olympics starting cannon doesn't look exactly like the MSX version of the Burst Liner, but in 1986 there was a limited run of SD Burst Liner toys, which could be combined with SD versions of some of the other MSX suits. And that SD Burst Liner looks just about exactly right. The foundation of our project here at Mobile Suit Breakdown is covering Gundam in order, starting from the beginning, so we can understand how the franchise developed over time. To try to experience each work in light of what had come before, and to the best of our ability block out anachronisms and spoilers. But while that's the best way to do the kind of analysis that really interests us, There's no particular reason why a Gundam fan, new, old, or not yet, shouldn't watch whatever appeals to them, and in whatever order they like. We recognize that any Gundam show, and any season of this podcast, might be your first, which is why we like to start with a brief rundown of the in-universe context that we think you ought to have before diving into any particular show. For seasons 2 through 4, these have been relatively straightforward, abridged recaps of the events of the prior shows. But, for the first time, Gundam is jumping back in time, to the closing days of the One Year War, the same war that was depicted in the original Mobile Suit Gundam, back in 1979. So, with that preamble out of the way, let's go. The Earth Sphere is at War Almost 80 years ago, humanity began a massive project to colonize the space around the planet Earth, building and populating cities on the moon, mining bases inside asteroids, and hundreds of vast man-made space colonies. These latter were organized into seven sides, administrative units, a bit like nations in space. But all were ruled by the Federation, an Earth-based world government that had superseded the United Nations of our day. In the decades since, tensions grew between the space colonists and their rulers on Earth. At some point, the date varies depending on which source you look at, the space nation known as Side 3 declared its independence and renamed itself Xeon. A period of tension and provocation followed during which the Federation and Xeon both built up their military forces Then, in the 79th year of the Universal Century, Zeon launched a preemptive strike against the Federation and the other sides. In a series of devastating attacks, Zeon forces, using new humanoid weapons called mobile suits, destroyed or seriously damaged four of the other sides, seized control of the cities on the moon, bombarded Earth, and even landed an army of occupation on the planet itself. In the course of the fighting, Half the human population, billions of people, were killed. Only two of the other sides were spared. Backwater Side Seven, home to only one partially completed colony, and the prosperous, peaceful Side Six. The leaders of Side Six had long-standing ties to Xeon, and when war broke out, they moved quickly to declare themselves neutral territory. Both sides agreed to respect that neutrality for the moment, at least, it fit their strategic goals. And perhaps each believed that they could make use of this neutral nation. Despite Zeon's initial success in the war, they lacked the strength to deliver the coup de gras on their reeling opponent. This gave the Federation that most precious resource, time. And they used that time to develop their own mobile suits, including the famous Gundam itself. In the last months of UC-79, the Federation deployed its new weapons en masse, and began to push back. It is here, not in UC-80, but in the waning days of UC-79, that War in the Pocket begins. This week, we are covering Poketo no Naka no Senso, Episode 1, Senjo Made wa Nan-Mairu, or War in the Pocket, Episode 1, How Many Miles to the Battlefield. As we dive into the first non-SD Gundam series that was not overseen by Tomino himself, we have a whole new generation of lead creators to learn about. Later in this episode, I'll go into a little bit more detail about some of them, and I'm sure many of these folks will come up again later, so... I'll keep it light for now. The overall director for the production was Takayama Fumihiko, who was mostly known at this point for his work as an episode director on the original Super Dimension Fortress Macross. He's credited for ten episodes, including the first two, and the famous episode 18, Pineapple Salad. Series composition, which you can think of as roughly coming up with the story, was handled by novelist Yuki Kyosuke the only time he would work on an anime. He would also write the novelization for the series. The person charged with turning that story into an actual screenplay for this first episode and the whole rest of the series was Yamaga Hiroyuki, a veteran of Daikon Films who had already written and directed the movie Royal Space Force, and although uncredited in the role, also contributed to the screenplay for the OVA Gunbuster while 0080 was in production. Character designs were handled by the legendary Mikimoto Haruhiko, another Macross veteran who also worked on the OVA Megazone 23 and was also splitting time with Gunbuster. The art director, in charge of the gorgeously painted backgrounds, was Sunrise veteran Ikeda Shigemi, coming fresh off of both Double Zeta and Char's Counterattack. The mecha designs were overseen by Izubuchi Yutaka, who you will no doubt remember for his contributions to Double Zeta and Char's Counterattack as well as Aura Battler Dunbine, and, starting one year before 0080, Patlabor. For this episode 1 specifically, the storyboards were done by lead director Takayama. Episode direction was handled by Takamatsu Shinji, who had done similar work on Double Zeta and Char's Counterattack, and will go on to more prominent roles in future Gundam projects. The animation director was Saito Itaru. I wasn't able to find much about Saito. His credits are mostly key animation, often on just one or two episodes per show. This seems to be his only Gundam-related credit. But take this with a grain of salt, because it looks like Saito worked under several different pseudonyms, which makes it hard for me to get a complete picture of his filmography. And with that, it's time for Nina's recap.
1: The Xeon Commandos deploy from a submarine on Earth. Their target? A Federation Polar Base. Bursting from the water, they catch the base completely by surprise. Federation forces scramble their own mobile suits and people rush for cover. But despite catching the enemy by surprise, despite the brutal efficiency of their attack, the mission fails. Before they can stop it, a shuttle launches, carrying some secret and significant cargo far away on one of the many colonies of the Earth Sphere. Even elementary school-aged children are obsessed with the war. Their colony is neutral and the danger seems far away, despite the occasional food shortage. So they draw mobile suits in their notebooks and play at having gunfights. One boy, Al, is fascinated by his friend Che's new prized possession, a real rank pin. But their classmate, Dorothy, taunts them with insistence that it's a fake. Their argument turns into one over whether the Federation even has mobile suits. Al claims to have seen one at the spaceport, and when Dorothy calls him a liar, verbal jabs turn into an actual tussle, until the teacher breaks up the fight. On his way to the spaceport to see his father, who works at a shipping company, Al decides to try to get proof of Federation mobile suits to prove Dorothy wrong. He sneaks through restricted access hangars with his small video recorder, and when caught, pretends to be lost, and no one is the wiser. But he just misses the unloading of the cargo from Earth, and the briefest glimpse of a mobile suit head inside one of the massive crates. At a cafe with his dad, the conversation seems stilted, His father asks how Al's doing in school, a topic Al lies about. And after a perfunctory how's your mother doing, the young boy is tasked with taking a very important letter home for her. As the two say goodbye, Al asks his father for a favor. On the walk home, Al is distracted and walks straight into a young woman carrying a stack of boxes, papers, and books. She apologizes profusely as he is knocked to the ground, and books and papers go flying. It's Chris, his old neighbor. She's just moved home from Earth for a government position. It begins to rain, and Al rushes to help Chris retrieve her things and get them into the house. Inside, she towels off his hair and gives him a dry sweatshirt to put on, moving aside a neatly folded Federation military uniform to retrieve it. She offers him some milk tea, and they sit on moving boxes, warming up and looking out at the rain. When Al finally arrives home to the large suburban house he lives in with his mother, she scolds him for not calling and telling her he'd be late. She warms up dinner for him and asks after his father, but when Al hands her the important letter, she doesn't open it. Afterwards, he's supposed to do his homework and go straight to bed, but turns the volume down and plays video games instead using a controller shaped like a gun to shoot at monsters in a city. Then, to destroy the city itself. A hospital, a police station, a school, a building labeled your house. One after another until the screen flashes. Your town is demolished. Game over. The next day at school, Al shows his friends the footage he got at the spaceport. Even with his dad's help, he wasn't able to get any proof of a Federation mobile suit. Dorothy will be insufferable over it. But the thought doesn't trouble him for long. Without warning, there is a massive explosion across the street, and the children in the schoolyard turn transfixed to see a gym mobile suit stalking through the city. Moments later, a zaku comes into view, emerging from the skyline. Building after building is caught in the crossfire between the two war machines. Cars crushed underfoot, streets and sidewalks crumbling and people caught between staring at the monstrous weapons and scrabbling out of the way of the destruction. To the children watching, it's all still unreal. Cool and better than fireworks. Al and his friends run up to the roof of the school and are still there when the Zaku, badly damaged, jumps over the school building, just barely scraping over the railings. They speculate it's aiming for a nearby park and Al takes off by himself, running as fast as he can after the smoking mobile suit, camera at the ready. At the park, his pell-mell pace leaves him slipping and sliding down a grassy slope. At the bottom, the zaku lies on its back, motionless amidst the trees. Al investigates, fascinated, until he looks up to see the pilot standing on the wreck, handgun pointed straight at him.
0: I'm so eager to finally watch this show with you.
1: This first episode made quite the impression.
0: Was it a good impression?
1: Yes, I'm just trying to decide where to start. What I see this episode as doing incredibly well is establishing a lot of characterization for all of our main characters in a very short amount of time.
0: I think it also does a great job of establishing a new and kind of unique feel versus all of the Gundam that has come before. And that newness is kind of inevitable. This is the first Gundam of a new era for the franchise. It's coming right around the 10 year anniversary of the first airing of First Gundam. Uh, It's the first Gundam of the Heisei era, of the era under the new emperor. It's the first Gundam, at least the first sort of mainline proper Gundam without Tomino at the head. And it's the first Gundam made entirely for uh, home video distribution. So it's moving out in a different channel than they've ever done before. So it is a very new kind of animal. We could start at the beginning with the uh, introduction of the Xeon Cyclops team.
1: This is sort of what I mean about how well they do the characterization. I don't know if these characters are ever going to show up again. I highly doubt it. And yet we immediately get this sense of who they are just from shots of their cockpits. The captain with his cap and his aviator scarf and his cigarettes, the guy with a flask on like a rubber band, the extremely vain Andy (laughs) combing his poofy blonde hair before they go into battle and the guy with pinups all over the inside of his cockpit.
0: I mean, these are sort of broad arch characterizations And they really remind me of like, I don't know, like the A-Team or Guns of Navarone, one of these uh, like commando movies or commando shows where you you got four or five guys and each one of them has exactly one strong character type.
1: Which I'm not sure works for a character who's going to be around a long time, but in terms of establishing personalities for this one scene and making us care a little more about who these people are and what they're doing, It's excellent. The other thing the opening establishes that is definitely carried through the entire episode and I'm sure will be through the whole series is that the way mobile suits are animated and the way mobile suit fights are choreographed makes the mobile suits feel even more human than they have in previous series. I think Mm. the movement is a little smoother and more naturalistic. They have them do things like I think Garcia has his mobile suit do like a slide at some enemies, and then he holds one of them and uses him as a human shield, and then more characterization just fires through his human shield.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: the way they have that mobile suit move feels very much like the way in action movies a body moves when it's shot many, many times.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, They have... One of the gyms gets shot in the arm, and the oil that leaks out looks like blood.
0: Though also, paradoxically, this gives the machines more of a machine-like feel, to me at least. Um, I will say, I think the Xeon mobile suits piloted by these Ace Commando guys move more fluidly and more naturally, whereas the Federation mobile suits tend to be kind of herky-jerky and slow to respond.
1: Well, we've yet to meet a Federation pilot. The ones that we have a sense have people in them move more like people. The ones that we don't see the person are more mechanical.
0: You mentioned when the the hand gets shot off of that one gym, it doesn't get shot all the way off. It's still hanging on by a couple of cables and the gun is still firing. And it's sort of like as it's firing, the gun sort of swings around and shoots the gym itself with its own bullets. And that sense of like machines just kind of being machines and continuing without human input. Or at the end of the Arctic battle, we see a shot of a gym just like sitting on the ground. Its head has been blown off and one of its arms is frozen in an upraised position. Like there is a feeling of Mecha as Mecha that is absent in the Tomino shows where a lot of work is done to destroy the barrier between the machine and the pilot. Here, the machine and the pilot are very different things.
1: I got such a completely different feeling ah, <laughs> from this. No, it's so fun. It just feels, to me, extremely human. All of the stuff you're pointing out as like making them feel more like machines to you, to me, feels more like gore, like trying to inspire the same sense of horror from damage to a mobile suit mm. as you would feel seeing that damage to a human depicted. So we feel entirely differently (laughs) about that. The one thing that is, I think, very different from previous Gundam and stood out to me and does hammer home the machine element is that throughout every mobile suit fight, they find ways to incorporate human people into the scene so that you never lose the sense of scale. You Mm -hmm. never lose sight of the fact that Here are these tiny people, and here are these huge mobile suits, which in the midst of space battles, where everyone is in a ship or a mobile suit, is really easy to lose. Then the mobile suits really are just human bodies fighting each Mm -hmm. other because they're in scale with each other. Throughout the entirety of this episode, we never lose sight of, like, here are buildings and here are mobile suits. Here are humans and mobile suits.
0: Yeah, yeah, I really like that. There's a focus on the practicalities of mobile suits. You know, when the Xeon forces launch at the beginning of the Arctic base battle, they have to have, like, extra booster tanks that they then discard as the battle continues. They have their one-use-only missiles for the gogs that are specially contained in, like, waterproof canisters Yeah, the for cases. this mission. The disposability of these things, the expendability of ammunition, and then just not automatically having more, it feels very realist. In a way that i really appreciate plus the emphasis on like infrastructure and transportation all of the big transport planes and the chonky cars that people drive around in the arctic base and then in the the final battle at the end of the episode you know we see these uh gyms coming up out of like underground hangars on this colony i love seeing that
1: one more scene in favor of the mobile suits as human bodies connection. At the end of the opening attack on the uh, polar base, the captain is holding Andy and his mobile suit is holding Andy's mobile suit and Mm. they're posed almost exactly the same way.
0: That's fair. That's a good observation. I will counter, though, one thing that emphasizes the separation between the human and the mobile suit is that in prior Gundam, typically when a pilot dies. The mobile suit explodes. In this case, in every instance, the mobile suit is still there. It's just the person inside is dead. You know, when Andy gets killed, his high is basically fine. It's just that one of those Jim's bullets managed to penetrate the cockpit and got him.
1: I do have a note in here that is uh, <laughs> in favor of your position on the separation of pilot and mobile suit which is at the very end, the down Zaku in this park, uh, they make a point of drawing it so that it looks like the painted background. And that style for the background is different than the style of the characters. Here, the Zaku has literally become the background, which makes it feel dead, immovable. You look at it and you know, okay, that's not going anywhere you feel immediately that it is dead and part of the scenery in a way that I'm not sure I've felt (laughs) from the way a a mobile suit is drawn before. Mm -hmm. It's even the same green as the trees and the grass and the other plants in this park. It fades into this place. It feels almost like a ruin.
0: That background is so beautiful. Uh, I've seen people Do fan art of it. I've seen people do Gunpla dioramas with it. It's great. It's an enduringly beautiful painting. However, since you have given me a little bit of support for my position, I'm going to give you a little bit of support for yours. When Al is running uh, to find this down to Zaku, and he slips on the grass and falls down the hill, he falls the same way the Zaku did.
1: Egads, could we both be right?
0: (gasps) No. One of us has to win. (laughs) Given what we've just been talking about, I think it's fairly safe to say that unlike other mecha series, this one is actually about the mecha. (laughs) Uh,
1: The mecha are the
0: characters.
1: (sighs) I do want to pull back briefly to talk about overall style, now that we've talked a bit about the way mobile suits and those fights are styled. Even just looking at... The intro, eye-catch, outro for this series, we already get a sense for it. It tells us a lot. It gives us a feeling. You know, for the titles, they use that military stencil typeface. The first part of the eye-catch is a a very doll-like child wearing a green army helmet.
0: I think that's supposed to be Al in the helmet.
1: The second part of the eye-catch has you know, a back pocket with a toy rocket and a Swiss army knife in it. The end credits are drawn versions of black and white wartime photography. And I don't know if they are all recreations of actual photographs, but several of them definitely are because several of them looked intensely familiar.
0: They all looked intensely familiar to me, but I've watched this series enough times that I think they're just reminding me of themselves. I can't be any help on this one.
1: There's one of a child in the center frame crying as a soldier like walks by and looks at them, which felt like the photo of the the little girl from Vietnam who'd been napalmed. Mm-hmm. There's one of some kids jumping off of a mobile suit into the ocean. And I could have sworn I've seen something like that before, but with like a tank or a plane or...
0: I suspect you're right. Watching this, all of the parts set in Side 6 in The Colony feel very autobiographical. Um, I don't know off the top of my head the ages of the people involved in making this at the sort of highest creative levels, but I get the feeling they were around Al's age when the Vietnam War was happening. And I think this is very much a series about the feelings and anxieties that people in Japan had during and about the Vietnam War.
1: But not just about war, also social anxieties, anxieties about technology, even anxieties about the prosperity they were experiencing. This kind of covers a bunch of different topics for this episode, you know, the design and style, the characterization things that I think the show is going to be about going forward. But, you know, Al lives in this suburb of huge houses with massive lawns, detached garages, which looks weird to an American, Mm -hmm. but I think is fairly normal. He's an only child. He has his own TV, his own video game system, his own camcorder. He lives in this incredible prosperity
0: which feels very bubble era japan
1: but at the same time his parents are separated and maybe divorcing he's used to telling adults what they want to hear he tells his father he's getting good grades in math and science because he knows as long as he's doing well in math and science his father will leave him alone even though the screen shows us his actual report card and he's doing bad in every subject
0: (laughs) The whole characterization of Al in school gave me so many feelings because that's uncomfortably close to my experience at that age. You
1: know, he tells his mom, they translated it in the version we're watching as yes, mom. But the way he says hi, hi, over and over to me almost feels more like yes, Mm ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Like even more formal, even more like respectful. But he doesn't mean it. He's just saying it so that she'll leave him alone And aside from his clear lack of engagement in school, aside from him getting into fights and getting bad grades, there's then the scene of him playing video games. And I love this scene so much because it tells us so much about him. The first part of it foreshadows the mobile suit fight that's going to happen inside the colony because the monsters in the game compared to the buildings in the game are about the same size as mobile suits are compared to the real-life buildings in the colony. After his mom brings him his gym uniform and reminds him to do his homework and go to bed, he turns his game back on, and he loses on purpose. He's not missing the monsters. He's deliberately shooting at the buildings, which is negative points every time, until he destroys the entire town, what the game describes as your hometown, including the school, including his home, until it is all gone. This is an intensely disaffected-
0: An angry child hemmed in from all sides under incredible pressure and lashing out in this virtual world.
1: Which in some ways might be a reflection of social fears around video games. I feel like every few years it comes back but this idea that video games make kids violent Mm -hmm. though my read on al is that he would have violent feelings regardless this is merely an outlet for them
0: and i think that is the attitude that the show takes towards him i think it's sympathetic to al and i think it's you know sympathetic to his desire to lash out in the video game um Obviously, Al playing this video game with a light gun is an extremely late 1980s thing, um, very much of its time. And the uh, game ends by cutting to a black screen with red text that just says, game, game Over.
1: That flashes even after the rest of the screen goes black.
0: Well, that that is the transition into the next scene, which is when the war comes to his hometown, when the Xeon forces attack. And it's revealed that there are Federation mobile suits in this colony in neutral side six. And that is the moment that answers the question in the episode's title. How many miles to the battlefield? None. Game over. The war is here.
1: Speaking of Al's disaffection as a young person, this even gets conveyed in the intro sequence along with another, I think, very important piece of information. There's a scene in school where Al is drawing mobile suits. He's clearly obsessed with mobile suits. He's mischievous when the girl behind him tries to be like, "Uh uh-uh, you shouldn't be drawing. He turns the volume all the way up on her school headphones and gets in trouble. But he clearly enjoys mischief.
0: I like this vision of the future school with the headphones at every desk, but this whole school sequence is part of what makes it feel so autobiographical because it's a very Japanese setup for a school, and you get that through details like Al mentioning that the kids are the ones who clean the school, that they have to clean the toilets, um, you know, the eating lunch in the classrooms, Mm -hmm. all of that feels very like typical anime Japanese school, but it also has these elements of the futuristic with the, the headsets. And that little sketch that Al is doing gives us some important information for later on because when this girl comes back over to challenge him and his friends about whether or not the Federation actually has mobile suits, uh, Al pulls a, my uncle works at Nintendo and he told me that, uh, saying, you know, my dad works for a shipping company and so I've been to the spaceport and I've seen the Federation mobile suits on their way to side seven. And we might assume that Al being a small child who's defending his friend might just lie. Kids do that all the time. Pretty
1: sure he was lying because he goes on to say it was black and scary.
0: Except when he draws that mobile suit when he's doodling in class, it's a Zaku, but it has shield-chan. It has a distinctly Federation Gundam shield. And in this moment before the Federation's mobile suits have become public knowledge, I can only think of one way that he could have seen that.
1: One other important theme, I suspect, for this series is going to be the relationship between children and violence, which gets brought up by the video game, but gets brought up even earlier in the intro itself mm-hmm. by the boys playing like finger guns, finger gun fight at each other while they run to school.
0: Including while they run through a crosswalk. They're really... like heedless of the real danger that is around them as they play this game.
1: Uh, The neighbor girl who he clearly has a crush on finger guns at him when she notices him spying on her with a camcorder. Bang. And when the attack happens, there's no sense that they understand the reality of it. They are not taking shelter. They're not looking for cover. They're watching, One of them even says, cool, and somebody else says, it's better than fireworks as gas tanks are exploding. The way Al chases this mobile suit that's crashing, like there there is simply no sense that they feel any danger and no sense that they see violence as anything other than play. Unsurprisingly, there are also some big stylistic differences. Uh, most of the characters have the big, expressive, I think of them as kind of watery looking anime eyes. Mm-hmm. Not to the extreme of, say, Clamp, <laughs> but uh, certainly more so than in Shar's Counterattack or uh, even in the previous series.
0: I mean, it's just an incredibly good looking show, I think.
1: It is beautifully done.
0: I know those eyes are harder to draw, but likewise the mobile suits that we see in these episodes are like more detailed, more complex, harder to draw versions of mobile suits that we saw back in First Gundam when they were much more simplified. And like I think every mobile suit we encounter in this episode is a new mobile suit. You know, the high gog is not a gog, the zagok E is not a Zagok, the Gym Command is not a gym. But In a very real way, these are just more complex, more detailed takes on those sort of more simply drawn mobile suits as they appeared in first Gundam. This, perhaps, is the promise of the OVA format. And I do think there is a conscious effort being made here to appeal to a more discerning, animation-loving fan. Older Gundam fans who have more disposable income, I mean, home video at this point is staggeringly expensive. Um, and I perceive, at least, in the characterization of the Xeon Commandos, for instance, and in the presentation of Al and this whole Side 6 world as kind of autobiographical and nostalgic, a uh, an adult orientation. This is intended for a older group of fans than perhaps any Gundam that we have seen so far.
1: So you feel like, counter to many other shows, the selection of the the sort of age of the protagonist and the choices they've made about the protagonist are not meant to be, like, semi-aspirational. They're meant to evoke nostalgia.
0: I think that's true. And, like, the way those Xeon guys are characterized, like, a porn magazine, cigarettes, a flask full of alcohol, and this guy, like, clearly has a drinking problem because the commanding officer advises him to go easy on it. That all feels adult in a way that we haven't seen in the Tomino Gundam.
1: One other aspect of this first episode that I want to bring up before we wrap is the music and sound design, which I thought was really great. Uh, In the cold open, the water sounds, the silence. It makes Earth feel alien, which it sort of is. How much time do we really spend on Earth in... Any of the other Gundam so far, like combined, <laughs> Earth as an environment, feels strange. And not for nothing, the deep oceans are often described as a frontier or being like outer space. During the infiltration itself, the music is very exciting, very actiony, electronic, and significantly pretty upbeat. Even though there's quite a lot of destruction and death, the music is not sad mm-hmm. or or dramatic in that way that you sometimes get very dramatic fight music. It feels energetic, but it doesn't pull on those negative emotions in the same
0: way. But then when they transition to side six and they do that, that intro song, it's so wistful.
1: When Al is spying on the neighbor, the music is very pretty. This is clearly meant to evoke a, a first crush memory, which... Uh, I guess, for a lot of men, is on an older woman, or at least men who are into Gundam.
0: Hey, it's the Gundam tradition. You gotta have an older Red redhead. Head. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Who works for the Federation?
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a scene where she's unpacking her bags, and she mm-hmm. takes out a Federation uniform. Yeah. There's a pilot helmet behind the bag.
1: Ah, uh, I did not see the pilot helmet.
0: So, in fact, we have met a Federation pilot.
1: Yet another great bit of characterization. It's only a moment, right? They simply have to show her rifling through a suitcase and pulling out a Federation uniform and we know immediately, oh, she works for the Federation and she's not telling people about it. It's a secret. And she just came from Earth.
0: Though she did say she had a government job, which feels like the kind of thing you would say if you were a spy or Yeah. Um god, this whole episode has such great characterization. I can't decide which bit I want to talk about. Um the, uh, the tea party that she has with Al is so nice and sweet. Um, Al's relationship to food in this episode is interesting because he doesn't eat at lunch.
1: Yet another sign of prosperity, right? That anybody is in a position to turn down a meal.
0: Even if it is synthetic hamburger. And that also has an interesting line about the supply ships being held up. The colony is not entirely self-sufficient.
1: You brought up food. Later on, he gets a soda, like a violently green <laughs> soda from a vending machine. Like
0: a slushy or a slurpee or something like that.
1: He has the milk tea with his neighbor.
0: Mm-hmm. He goes home and his mom microwaves him a casserole. Uh, I don't think it's meant to be a microwave like TV dinner. I think it's something she made earlier and got cold because he didn't come home on time.
1: Yeah, especially since she's saying while she does it, You should have told me if you were going to be late.
0: But he sort of picks at it, doesn't eat very much. He tells her that he ate with his dad, but I think that's another lie from Al. Because we see him at the diner, and there's no indication of any food. looks like he just has a drink. Filling up on soda. Well, like Amaro in those early episodes of First Gundam, he's not eating very much. Presumably it has something to do with all the stress he's under. Which, again, feels uncomfortably real for me.
1: Or, um... A lot of disordered eating is about taking control of one of the few things in your life that you have nearly absolute control over, which is what you put into your body.
0: Mm -hmm. And you see in Al that struggle to assert control. I mean, his just flagrant refusal to do his homework, to go to bed, to do any of what his mom is telling him feels like the same thing. Like, these are just the couple of hours I have to myself and I'm going to spend them how I want.
1: Right. This is a kid who is so tired of being told what to do
0: (laughs) of being punished at school of yeah
1: oh there was one other sound thing
0: Ooh, yeah yeah tell me what your nina ears hear
1: when the zaku flies over the school and nearly clips al and his friends everything goes really quiet and feels very still there's like debris that's being blown across in the wind and that's moving but the zaku itself and al have this intense feeling of stillness that is augmented by the sound design of that scene.
0: And there is a sense of the two of them looking at each other, of an interaction, a communion in that moment. It feels tremendously important. And the sound does a a lot of heavy lifting to sell that. We can't wrap up today without mentioning that that very expensive and very good looking CGI shot from the movie Char's Counterattack has been reused because why wouldn't you? Uh, the opening shot of the colony rotating is the same CGI from Char's Counterattack. I'll also point out that when they go inside the colony, they give us a pan across this colony from a pretty high altitude. And it's basically the same way that the first episode of First Gundam opens, except that the pan is going in the opposite direction, down and to the right instead of up and to the left. And there's no hawk.
1: (laughs) So to sum up, I'm really excited for more episodes of War in the Pocket. This is extremely promising as a first episode. And if I had to predict the kinds of themes that are going to come up, uh, perhaps one of the most obvious is that there's no real safety and neutrality, which is a point Gundam has made before. That one's not new. Uh, but also the internal lives of children, the relationship between children and violence.
0: And I want to keep picking at this idea of War in the Pocket as representing Japanese anxieties during Vietnam. The sense of the war being like right over there and of the U.S., being intimately involved in Japan at that time, the Japanese government giving material support to the U.S. during the war and the fear that the war might, like, come to Japan.
1: I don't think this happened until much later because I think it happened in the 2000s, but there might have been similar incidents before but where the U.S. had agreed not to store any nukes in Japan and then it was found that they were secretly storing nukes in Japan. And so here you have this neutral colony that nobody thinks has any mobile suits and nobody thinks is allied with either of the sides in the war al says explicitly you know a war between the federation and zeon has nothing to do with us and then a bunch of federation mobile suits come up from underground
0: yeah were there any u.s military bases in japan during (laughs) vietnam yes listener yes there were and even if there wasn't knowledge of the u.s secretly storing nuclear weapons You know, everybody knew the U.S. was storing jet fighters.
1: And other material and soldiers were going to Japan for R&R sometimes. And that typeface from the intro evokes crates of materiel.
0: And a lot of Japan's prosperity was due to supplying the U.S. Army for this war. Probably a lot of Side 6's prosperity comes from its business dealings with the Federation.
1: And now, Tom's research on nostalgia and nuclear weapons.
0: I want to follow up on a couple threads we identified during the talkback. The first of them is that sense of 0080 as a nostalgia piece, capturing the feelings of being a child in Japan during the Vietnam War. I suspect this is something that we'll talk about a lot this season, and those conversations will be more productive if we talk a bit about the background behind them now. At the start of this episode, I listed the key members of the creative team, the lead director, Takayama Fumihiko, the series composer, Yuki Kyosuke, the screenwriter Yamaga Hiroyuki, art director Ikeda Shigemi, character designer Mikimoto Haruhiko, and mecha designer Izubuchi Yutaka. These are the people, along with producer Uchida Kenji, who collectively decided how this series would look and feel, sharing responsibility for the story and the characters. Hopefully we'll be able to revisit some of them in more detail in the future, but for now let's just look at some basic biographical details Takayama was born in 1953 the year after the end of the formal US occupation of Japan and the year before Viet Minh troops overran the French garrison at Dien Bien Phu leading to direct US military intervention in Vietnam in 1964 Takayama was Al's age that was the year the US Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin resolution and the Johnson administration began a massive escalation in U.S. military involvement. Ikeda, the art director, was born the following year. When he was Al's age, the U.S. launched its first major ground offensive and increased the draft from 17,000 men per month to 35,000. Izubuchi, the mecha designer, was born in 1958. He was Al's age in 1969, the year when the Nixon administration began its Vietnamization policy and the year after the Tet Offensive, as well as the massacre of South Vietnamese civilians by U.S. forces at My Lai. Mikimoto, the character designer, was born in 1959. That was the year the first American soldiers were killed in Vietnam. He was Al's age in 1970, the year U.S. strategic bombers began attacking suspected camps and supply bases in neutral Cambodia and the year that National Guard soldiers killed four anti-war protesters at Kent State University in Ohio. Yamaga, the scriptwriter, was born in 1962, so he was Al's age in 1973, and the last US troops left Vietnam six days after his 11th birthday. Yuki, the series composer, was two years younger, and so he was Al's age in 1975, when North Vietnamese troops rolled over the South Vietnamese Army, captured Saigon, formally unified the country, and ended the war. For all of them, the experience of being a child in a non-combatant and somewhat neutral country adjacent to a massive war was a personal experience. And those were memories that they no doubt called upon when it came time to tell Al's story. Now let's shift focus and talk about nuclear weapons in Japan. During the talkback, Nina and I referred to a scandal that we remembered happening in the 2010s, but we had forgotten some of the details of it. And it turns out that those details are important, so let's dig in. As you know, when Japan surrendered at the end of World War II, the country was occupied by the US military. That occupation lasted until 1952, during which Japan began the long process of rebuilding its devastated economy after the depredations of war as well as reimagining its national identity after watching its dreams of empire burn and sink beneath the waves like so many broken warships. Key to this renegotiation of national identity was the new post-war constitution, and perhaps the most famous provision in the constitution was its Article 9. To quote the official English translation, 1. Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as means of settling international disputes. Two, in order to accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. But peace did not prevail in Asia after World War II. The first Indochina war between French colonial troops and the Viet Minh insurgency started a year after Japan's surrender, and the U.S. was still occupying Japan when the Korean War broke out in 1950. U.S. and Japanese leaders alike recognized that, on the one hand, Japan was a vital strategic ally in the Pacific, and a bulwark against the rising power of China and the Soviet Union. Yet, on the other hand, Japan did not have an army, nor the industrial capacity or constitutional authority to maintain one. In 1951, as part of the negotiations to end the occupation, both nations signed the Security Treaty between the United States and Japan, pursuant to which the United States would assume responsibility for Japan's external defense, stationing troops, more than 250,000 of them at the time, and maintaining a network of bases, more than 2,800, throughout the islands. Although controversial in Japan, the treaty would be revised in 1960, renewed in 1970, and is still in force today. The treaty effectively made Japan a non-belligerent partner in the U.S. intervention in the Vietnam War. But we will have to explore just what that meant for Japan in a future episode. For now, let's stay focused on those nuclear weapons and the scandals they caused. But to get there, we first need a digression on the Japanese government in the wake of World War II. During the occupation, the U.S. expelled many former officials from government, especially those linked to the disbanded Imperial military. But when the occupation ended, those prohibitions were lifted, and a raft of arch-conservative former officials returned to power. In the mid-50s, they consolidated power and formed the right-wing Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP. This political alliance proved powerful and enduring. In the 66 years since it formed, the LDP has held power for 62 of them. Arguably the most important figure in the founding of the party was Kishi Nobusuke, a suspected, but uncharged, Class A war criminal who had developed a reputation for lawless brutality during his time overseeing the economy of the puppet state Manchukuo. He returned to Japan in 1939 and served in the cabinet of Tojo Hideki throughout most of the war. After the surrender, Kishi was imprisoned for three years, but some in the american contingent viewed the staunchly anti-communist kishi as a useful ally in a post-occupation japan in 1957 thanks to deft parliamentary maneuvering and some old-fashioned good luck kishi became prime minister and in 1959 he outlined the principles of a policy that would guide the ldp for decades to come japan would not manufacture nuclear weapons nor would it permit their entry into the country. A later LDP prime minister, Sato Eisaku, would make these government policy. But as was so often the case, the public statements did not line up with reality. In a series of secret agreements starting in the 1960s, often made with little to no written confirmation to better maintain plausible deniability, Japan's government agreed to permit the United States to transport nuclear weapons through Japanese ports in a kind of don't ask, don't tell agreement. As long as the US never asked for permission, the Japanese government would never be forced to refuse it. All of this was ultimately revealed and acknowledged by the Japanese government in 2010, which is what Nina and I remembered. The LDP had always denied accusations about those secret agreements. And that makes sense. Their party had been in power at all the relevant times. Whatever happened, they would be on the hook for it. But in the mid-2000s, under the leadership of Kishi's grandson, Abe Shinzo, the LDP started to lose its hold on power. A series of scandals led to them losing control of the upper house in 2007. Then they were crushed in the 2009 general election. The new government was led by the centrist Democratic Party of Japan, Perhaps eager to put the matter to rest, perhaps just eager to score a few points against their rivals, the new government immediately formed a commission to investigate the rumors. And in March 2010, the commission announced its findings. It was all true. Of course, revelations made in 2010 couldn't possibly have influenced the creation of War in the Pocket, which is why this next bit is so important. Despite all of the efforts at secrecy, news of the secret agreements and the presence of U.S. nuclear weapons in Japan leaked out in the 70s and early 80s. In 1972, newspaper reporter Nishiyama Takichi revealed documents purportedly proving the existence of one such secret pact. The story was squashed, and Nishiyama was charged with illegally obtaining government documents and was forced to quit his job. But the secret was starting to leak. In 1974, a retired American Rear Admiral testified to Congress about the presence of nuclear weapons in Japan. Then, in 1981, the former U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Edwin Reischauer, revealed the existence of secret agreements that he himself had helped negotiate. The Japanese government denied it all at the time, but Japanese media reported the ambassador's statements. In fact, Reischauer said that his revelation was prompted by a request for an interview from a Japanese newspaper, the Mainichi Daily News, which just happened to be the same paper that had employed Nishiyama Takichi when he investigated the story nine years prior. So, yes, despite the official denials, it is very plausible that the people making War in the Pocket in 1989 believed, correctly, as it turns out, that their government had secretly, and contrary to stated policy, agreed to allow U.S. nuclear weapons into the country. That, then, leaves us with a question. Did those revelations affect the way 0080's creators viewed their own government and its relationship to foreign powers? And were those views then expressed in their depictions of the Side 6 colony at the heart of this show? And now, Nina's research on the history of Playboy magazine in Japan.
1: There are two background but fairly prominent references to Playboy magazine in this episode. First, one of the literal pinups in Garcia's cockpit at the beginning appears to be a Playboy cover. It has Playboy written across the bottom, whereas the actual magazine always had it written across the top, but it clearly says Playboy. Second, in the colony, there is a sign directing motorists to nearby parking that features, for some reason, a woman dressed in the classic Playboy Bunny outfit. Playboy itself was founded in 1953 in Chicago, Illinois, USA, and is, in our time, a brand known around the world. But in case any of you, especially younger listeners, aren't familiar with it, it's a men's lifestyle and entertainment magazine, most famous for its centerfolds two-page spreads featuring nude or almost-nude models. They have also, over the years, published short stories by the likes of Arthur C. Clarke, Ian Fleming, Vladimir Nabokov, John Updike, Saul Bellow, P.G. Wodehouse, Roald Dahl, Haruki Murakami, Joyce Carol Oates, John Irving, Anne Sexton, Kurt Vonnegut, Ray Bradbury, and Margaret Atwood. Cartoons by Harvey Kurtzman, Jack Cole, Eldon Dedini, Jules Pfeiffer, Shel Silverstein, Eric Sokol, Roy Raymond, and Gahan Wilson, most of the cartoonists I'm unfamiliar with, but they were all prominent in their time, and interviews with prominent figures from a wide variety of fields. It was also, unsurprisingly, a lightning rod for debates around sexism and the treatment of sexual material in American culture, particularly during the sexual revolution and feminism movements of the 1960s and 70s. The 1970s marked Playboy's peak popularity in the United States, with declines over the following decades due to increased competition from other men's lifestyle magazines, like Penthouse and Maxim, and the increasing availability of pornographic material. In some ways, it was a victim of its own success. What had once seemed daring and racy soon became passé. Playboy has, over the course of its existence, created nearly 50 country-specific versions of the magazine of which Japan's was among the earliest, with its first issue published in 1975. Brazil's was published that same year, and the only earlier ones were Germany and Italy in 1972, and France in 1973. The Japanese version was published by Shueisha under the name Gekkan Boy, or Monthly Playboy, sometimes shortened to Gepure, or MPB. Not to be confused with Weekly Playboy, also published by Shueisha, but begun in 1966 and with no relationship to the US-based Playboy company. These magazines typically feature a mix of content from the US magazine, translated into Japanese, and content created in Japan for a Japanese audience. On top of the magazine, Playboy had a chain of nightclubs with the first opening in Chicago in 1960. These clubs required a membership or for you to be the guest of a member, and typically had a bar and lounge, a restaurant, and live performances. All of the servers and hostesses were Playboy bunnies, dressed in the iconic costume that, with some modifications, has been enduringly popular. The costume is inspired less by actual bunnies and more by the Playboy logo, which was designed by the magazine's first art director, Arthur Paul, a stylized rabbit head in profile wearing a bow tie. The classic Playboy Bunny outfit consisted of a strapless one-piece, something between a bathing suit and a corset, with a high-cut leg and a cinched waist, sheer black stockings worn over flesh-toned ones, high-heeled pumps, a fluffy white tail, a headband with rabbit ears, a white tuxedo-shirt-style collar with black bow tie, and white cuffs with logo cufflinks. According to the Wikipedia page, but unsourced, the original was designed by Ilse Torrens, and the design was modified by French fashion designer Rene Blot. It was the first commercial uniform to be trademarked. Four of these clubs were opened in Japan as franchises, in Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya, and Sapporo, the first being the Tokyo Club in the Roppongi neighborhood in 1976. However, as one source points out, other similar clubs in Japan were already having their waitresses wear bunny suits at that time, one example being the Esquire Club, which opened in 1964. The bunny suit had already become generic, untethered from the specific connection to the Playboy brand, at least in Japan. So if the Japanese version of the magazine started in 1975 and the Japanese club opened in 1976, but the costume was already generic, how did that happen? The likeliest explanation, and of particular relevance to War in the Pocket, is that the U.S. edition of Playboy was coming to Japan through the U.S. military and its soldiers. Many U.S. servicemen had their own subscriptions, had copies sent over by their family stateside, or purchased import copies on bases where it was used as a morale booster. The last point is of particular note. Many soldiers in the Vietnam War and their commanding officers not only didn't want to be there, but were unconvinced by the U.S. government's justifications for the war. They did not feel they were fulfilling a moral duty or making the world or even the United States more safe, which in turn affected how officers tried to motivate the rank and file. These feelings also connected to the written content of the magazine, which was, I was surprised to learn, consistently anti-war without ever veering into anti-soldier. The blame was squarely on high-ranking government and military officials who began the conflict and kept it going. Playboy was among the most common and available uncensored reading materials available to U.S. servicemen. A connection to home, a news source that wasn't the military controlled Stars and Stripes. Playboy was anti war without being countercultural or hippie, and published letters from soldiers in active service. They even donated a full page ad spread to veterans against the Vietnam War. It gave young men, the soldiers the U.S. sent to Vietnam were on average the youngest in the country's history, a way to vent their discontent, to give voice to their feelings about the war without incurring hostility from their fellows. Is it any wonder then, between the nude pictures, the connection to home, and the politics, that many soldiers were readers and fans? One source quoted an earlier paper saying, the quickest way to know how long a unit had been in Vietnam was to count the playmates pinned to the wall of the base recreation room. The Playboy logo or versions of it were painted on vehicles and buildings, worked into patches for jackets, and so on. The magazine presented an, at that time, very different idealized image of masculinity than the one many American men had grown up with. Not the steady, self-denying head of family and breadwinner, but an independent, urban, single man who enjoys the good life and that good life was characterized as an individual and consumer-oriented lifestyle. Consumption had been heavily associated with women, both in terms of women buying inessential items for style and adornment, and because in hetero households, women generally handled most of the household spending, but the playboy man, who was frequently described implicitly and explicitly, went on vacations had stylish clothes and a beautiful modern apartment, bought himself the latest and best electronics, like stereo systems and cameras, and enjoyed the finest music, alcohol, tobacco, and so on. This was extremely aspirational. Most readers were younger and from socioeconomic backgrounds that made that kind of lifestyle a dream, but a theoretically achievable one. It wasn't about being born upper class, but about achieving career success that facilitated a lifestyle. In addition to being young, the U.S. forces in Vietnam were more racially integrated than forces in the past. It was groundbreaking when, in 1964, Playboy featured its first Asian-American centerfold, China Lee, and their first black centerfold, Jennifer Jackson, in 1965. Integration and representation versus the sexualization of minority women in America is outside my scope here, but I will say that Jackson has told interviewers She had more ambivalent feelings about her decision to model for Playboy, but received mail from Black men who felt that her inclusion signaled to them that the Playboy lifestyle was an aspiration open to them. It was not an exclusively white aspiration. And internationally, in Vietnam, and I assume in Japan, Playboy was a mark of America, even a legacy. Copies were found in North Vietnamese bunkers and traded on the Black market, It became symbolic of the U.S. and its values. One source quoted a young Polish man, a friend of a soldier, who told him, It doesn't matter that all American young men don't live like Playboy heroes. What matters is that we think they do. For us, Playboy is the symbol of your good life. Much later, in an article from the October 1985 issue of Japan Quarterly, Edakawa Koichi, writes about the contemporary food and restaurant scene in Tokyo, and mentions a recent article from Monthly Playboy about which Tokyo restaurants were favorites among foreign visitors. Playboy magazine was a view of America, but the window went both ways. They were also interested in showing what Americans thought of Japan and what foreigners valued in Japanese living and culture. Playboy's global reputation and brand presence reflect the globalization of the time. U.S. cultural products circulating more widely than ever before and being adapted to local markets. Given all of this, I think it's fair to say that the use of Playboy in that cockpit is definitely meant to invoke both U.S. soldiers, rather than generic soldiers, and specifically the Vietnam War. The Korean War mostly predates the magazine. And it reflects the U.S. military presence in Japan, from the occupation to the present day. I'd read before, but could not find confirmation of for this piece, that soldiers in Vietnam would have been sent to Japan sometimes for R&R, and soldiers stationed at the bases in Japan would have been sent to Vietnam. The U.S. bases in Japan were the main staging ground for U.S. forces and materiel, and many of the soldiers would have passed through there on their way to combat or on their way home. Garcia's bandana as a headband is straight out of the 1986 Vietnam war movie, Platoon, I feel confident saying that Garcia, and by extension his whole squadron, are modeled on or at least heavily influenced by the Japanese image of Vietnam War-era US soldiers. It's not hard to imagine one or more members of the production team for War in the Pocket might have had a formative experience, trading for or being given a magazine by a soldier or finding a discarded one. If we needed more evidence of a Vietnam War connection, oddly enough, Playboy Magazine is it. Next time on episode 5.3, Falling In, we research and discuss episode 2 of War in the Pocket and I am once again asking you to give me that camcorder. How many seconds of video could you put on a floppy disk? Assignments with threatening auras. No girls allowed. Coolest fort ever. Kids never change. He is a biter. <sighs>
0: pew, 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 whoosh. Mobile suit noises.
1: Peak character design is when there's a big guy and a little guy and they're buddies. And in for a penny. Can't you see that you are sweet?
0: Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Pieces of Life by Analog by Nature. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at gundampodcast, or by email to gundampodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. With the Omicron variant of COVID-19 currently surging in New York and around the world, I cannot in good conscience encourage you to share your wrong Gundam opinions, not even on deserted street corners. So stay home and mutter your wrong Gundam opinions to yourself or your most patient roommate, family member, pet, gunplum model, or kitchen appliance. Maybe something like... Char's iconic line about feeling like a clown was actually a mistranslation. It should have been... I, Sharaznabal, am going to become the Joker. We won't hear you, but that's for the best, don't you think? I've seen people do uh, gunpla. Um, what's the term when you have a dioramas? Dioramas, yes. to deliver Gundam podcasting goodness to our adoring fans and the haters. In the Arctic base scene, there's a pile of crates and they've been labeled with English and they say MS and then a word I can't say on the podcast. Very clearly it says MS. Wow.
1: And yes, that was a Terry Pratchett reference. Remember Esmeralda Margaret note spelling?
0: You're listening. (sighs) Uh, uh,
1: Test, 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 testing, recording under a blanket. I'm not sure it's helping. Insert Tom's mobile suit noises here.